Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part two of my conversation with Brody Tate from Loyola University, Chicago. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. You were about to hear part two of our conversation with Brody Tate from Loyola University, Chicago. Please be sure to listen to our previous episode to hear part one of this conversation. There is something that I have found really interesting recently, and this is maybe just in the last two, three years that I've seen a I've seen students now being very successful at getting um, jobs, getting recognitions, getting getting the career advancement that they want. Maybe it's a grad school or whatnot. Um, by not actually going to package themselves like in a very deliberate way, but instead they just basically publish their um, project, much like a PhD would publish their thesis. And people get to know them by their work and not by who you say you are. You are showing people who you are by the work that you do. And then the employers or the graduate school advisor or whomever look at these things and going, that's what I'm looking for. This is what I want. This is the person I want to work with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think that that has been happening more and more so. And um, that... I almost feel like that it challenges a lot of um, portfolio program around the world, around the country, certainly, in how they even create, you know, certain templates for the students and even how they advise the students what they put in there. Um, Because I think that it's these types of personalities that makes them unique. Yeah, absolutely. I fully would agree with that. I had a student a couple of years ago that was in engineering applying for a very high level. It would It's an internship that would become a job if successful. Mm-hmm. And when applying, they were told eventually that they were actually highlighted above other students that had applied um, and were almost considered uh, or not considered for the role until they saw their portfolio link and they needed someone that could run a project and design and build a robot and their senior capstone was designing and building a robot and had a video time-lapse of them doing it. Mm-hmm. And so the the hiring committee was like, yeah, we're going to highlight you and move you through the internship into the full-time position because you have proof of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it highlighted those elements of their personality that weren't just, like you said, prescriptive or very, um, we would call performative, of just the, the fun, fluffy about me section. Or um, And I've seen students and even some staff and faculty make really funny portfolios that highlight aspects of who they are in ways that I never would have known otherwise. And one right. of the one of the people on campus here that I work with uh, found out that um, she's an Olympic skater, or not Olympic skater, she's a professional figure skater. Um, wow. <laughs> and just, just random tidbits about people in their lives yeah. outside of Loyola that still highlight some really impressive things that they do. Um, so yes, much of what you said is, in the last few years, I've seen people advocating for a shift in portfolios in a way that I haven't ever seen before and students that are more receptive to it. A lot of times, especially from the older model we had, they were just bored. It wasn't super advanced technology. They were just in it to get the grade. And now they're starting to to openly express a lot more and share that with folks, which has been nice. 
Well, especially if they can put something that they actually did develop a passion for and that they're proud of, you know, it it really yeah. is a, it's a it's 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 a is a double whammy, you know. They mm-hmm. they got both. Um, I the first time I actually saw it was when I was teaching. I was, um, I think this was around two thousand and five, two thousand six, um, and I had um I was teaching at uh, an art education program. So these are students getting their MAT degrees and they go out to teach. And um, as part of the program requirement, uh, the students need to do a um, student teaching as a, I mean, in this case, this student was teaching, I think, at an elementary school. And uh, he, um, this student is brilliant. His name is Brian Hutchinson. And he uh, created a, this awesome project for for kids like their fifth graders to to do right it's called a flat pack toy i'm sure i can google and still find it somewhere (laughs) and um so it's it's so cool because he knows that like schools don't have any money they can't buy art supplies you know it's like you know it, it doesn't come cheap so he designed this thing where it's a pdf anyone can download and print it out and and it's basically prints on an eight and a half by 11 it's got these score lines on them and cut lines on them so that kids can basically, what the challenge is, they have to design their own robots, but they have to figure out where, how it's going to fold into a 3D object <laughs> and that they're going to line up, like the design's going to work. So okay. like these kids just kind of, I mean, it's a very simple thing. Anyone can download it, use it. Yeah. And he come up with a whole lesson plan. And so sort of, like, I think you were talking about curriculum development earlier. I'm <laughs> like, oh, this is going to, you're going to love this. And so <laughs> he, he did that. And, um, and he, and at the time, all of our students have sort of that more traditional portfolio, you know, has all the classes and all the reflections and all that. But then he created a separate, uh, site that was for the students and for the, his students and his, their parents to see these, this really cool flat pack toy. And so the, this entire site was just about that. There was nothing else. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about like didn't have a CV on it, you know, and yeah. and so um, and it was so fun because you can see. The, I think he made a little animated video, and he had he had like you know all these awesome looking robots that students mm-hmm. made, and the, the 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 way that they went about doing that. And what's amazing was that um, right before he graduated. Uh, there was a, a, a really well-known author in, you know, in sort of K-12 um, art education um, had saw, had seen this and, and ended up, he ended up getting a job at this publishing company and they basically worked with these authors to create curriculum and they got published. And it was like before he even graduated, right? And <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And um so for me, when I talked to, I talked to, I, I ended up getting, I ended up getting to know the publishers pretty well. And they, they basically said, oh no, like, sure. He probably has some other portfolios from it, but it looks like everyone else's. <laughs> like, this is what I'm looking like. This, yeah. the, the work, you know, yes, like said everything. So what ended up happening was that because of that, that flat pack toy lesson got used in, I don't know if it's still still being used, but it got used even like right away for like thousands of school districts had it. 
Um, yeah. So like for amazing. him, it was like, oh my god, like what happened? And he didn't even he didn't he didn't plan it. But <laughs> yeah, I no remember. <laughs> but you can't plan that kind of thing. Yeah. But I remember like thinking like, wow, that is so much more powerful than a really what you think is a well polished you know portfolio to present yourself. Absolutely, and that's more colorful in like in the broadest sense of that word is that it, it highlights so many different aspects in a very accessible way, um, but it's different and it's new and it's it's very specific to that that person and that work and and it highlights all the elements that you would hope to see rather than the very standard and prescriptive polished portfolio. At this point, that's why I don't want to see a LinkedIn profile when I log onto someone's profile. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see the similar structures. I want to see the interesting things they've done. Um, Patrick does a really good example of this in his professional portfolio. He built an infographic, and so it's very bright, it's colorful, and it talks about a lot of nerdy, highly pedagogical practices, but it's done in a way that's very accessible and very fun, and it's very beautiful. And he went and had full... We only had Digication for I think 10 days at that point when he started working on it. And so he had like, he had a 30 minute training with me and went completely on his own and made an amazingly beautiful portfolio. And so it's really fun to start seeing a lot of those things and hear those stories because that's what we hope to foster is giving people a tool or or a gateway to at least start to look um, at doing that in their own fields, in their own ways. And we host the Undergraduate Research and Engagement Symposium every year um, through our center. And we encourage students to use portfolios. And before, very few people took us up on it. But when we went virtual, it was an easily transferable tool for people to share their research. And so faculty were able to see students work on a level they've never seen before um, and incorporating like everything from bio, like biology and, and, and microchemistry to um, even moving up to uh, like marketing students presenting on the billboards that they've seen around the city of different areas. And um, it was it was very eclectic to see their work in a way that people haven't seen research in a while. They're used to the standard, the, the poster presentation, right. they print out on a cork board, and then you walk around an auditorium, which I think still has some merit in some ways. Um, but it was different to ha- to ask everyone to shift to completely new models. And so even the folks that we ask that are evaluators, um, evaluators a little bit more of a harsh term than I would like. They encourage and, and give constructive, positive feedback to the students as if it were a full-scale conference. And they they were wowed by the amount of work that students had gotten done in a pandemic, in a virtual environment, and then used these different methods to share them out. And it was, it was absolutely incredible to see some of the things that they've done. And I, I wish like- I could still share those out, but Sometimes their research is unpublished and right. they can't make that public, but I got to see a lot of it. <laughs> I love the I love the way that people have been um, so creative this last year. And and um, I I've known now number of programs where the faculty members are saying we will never do a poster sessions again because mm-hmm. the poster sessions, you know, it's it is really nice and energetic you know, during those like couple hours when it's open, but it, it's very ephemeral Mm -hmm. and that, um, and that, uh, sometimes it, it's so ephemeral that yes, you get the really awesome highlights, uh, but it's, um, in my experience also, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hit or miss in that if your student, um, you know, wasn't able to capture the energy of the, of the people that are walking through and they, they didn't get the level of feedback that they got. 
then the opportunity is over. Um, exactly. And you can't really get it back, you know, because they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, whereas the portfolio seems to have this um, just a little bit longer lifespan and it, it, it allows them to sort of go back in and do more things and react and, 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 and um, take the feedback that they, pe- people might have had and then do more with it. And I don't know, it just seems to have, um, it seems like it elongates that, that process a little longer, just mm-hmm. enough that it, it gives different people a, a, a bigger chance. And I've always thought that is important aspect of a, of a learning portfolio. Oh, yeah. Even when I go back, I had to do a, a capstone portfolio for my master's. I graduated in 2016. I still go back and look at my website. I don't know where those papers are. I couldn't tell you what, what folder on Google or what yeah. what flash drive I have them stored on. But I can click in my link and I remember the password and I always go back to it. And I still show some students and I was like, here's an example of me not trying very hard also. I've, I just wanted the capstone grade. The work is all there. The portfolio was not my best work, um, but it's always funny. And there's a really goofy picture on the landing page, but I can go back and find all those documents and I can go back and I, I love to go back and see honestly how much I forgot and how much, how I was impassioned in that moment in that class on that project that I just sort of forgot. And I think it's been overly enlightening to go back and see my work and even sometimes very humbling. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier. And I think that it just rolled off your tongue because it's so natural to, to you and probably the curriculum, you know, the way that you think about curriculum at, at Loyola. Uh, you talked about high impact practices, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you want to just you know for any of our audience who who may not know what that is, you want to just say a couple words about it, and then let's talk about you know some of the high impact practices that is being practiced at Loyola. Yeah, absolutely. So, general the um, I mostly work with high impact practice of learning portfolios, but we're we work in the center with a multitude of them. So high impact practices are meant to design um, very uh, highly critically developed learning experiences. And so not to just take the traditional school structure, but add elements of higher thinking, metacognition, um, critical reflection, and basically have um, feedback set up where they have an experience, they have a chance to think and reflect on it, they can talk about it and discuss, get some feedback, and then evaluate it and continue the cycle again. It's meant to be a lifelong learning process to give students and anyone who's a lifelong learner the, the skills to continually build off collective sets of knowledge. And so those can be service learning projects where folks are going out into a community working on an aspect of actually engaging in a level that is not just community service, it's, it's giving benefit to both the the community host and the folks that are engaging. So often we, it's mostly from the student perspective, but we want to have the community developed as much as we want the student to be developing in that experience. We don't want it to be one way or non-reciprocal. We don't want to go out and have, you know, the shining savior stamp put on someone's experience. We want them both to have some kind of enriching, positive encouragement that they both get to leave with something that has tangibly moved them in a forward direction. And so 
service learning, um, academic internships, undergraduate research. Um, those are the ones that we focus on within my center. But high impact practices can be um, immersion experiences, alternative spring breaks, um, studying abroad in really critical ways. And so I say critical in the sense of being um, highly developed, not critical as a negative connotation. <laughs> um, and so very quickly, high impact practices are meant to sort of elevate learning beyond the scope of what we would see as traditional structures. And so we use them, and I throw them out constantly, but it was George Koo who also endorsed one of um, the um, lovely works that I've done that uh, added learning portfolios, e-portfolios later to the set of what was considered high impact practices. And so it's a very hard club to get into. Um, I think it's only been changed the once to allow e-portfolios and I've yet to see any new innovations in that area. And so a lot of the work that we do at Loyola is fostering those environments is um, we have really strong community partnerships that we we love and, and foster our relationships with folks in the Chicago area and beyond. We have partnerships in our Rome campus. We have partnerships in our Maywood Medical Campus downtown, literally expansive across Chicago and the suburbs. And so we have folks that are working for congressional districts, for aldermen, for um, suburban government, um, municipal um, municipalities. We have folks that work with folks with disabilities, with immigrant and refugee populations, um, as well as anchoring ourselves, we have an anchor mission um, within uh, that um, Patrick served on the task force for, which is rooting a lot of our resources as an institution, being that Loyola is a Jesuit school and we're in a very urban environment. Um, it is our duty to encourage, enrich, and, and enhance the neighborhoods that we've put our universities in. Um, universities are money generators, or hopefully for to sustain themselves, they are. But what we do with that money is our ethical responsibility. And so whether it's in our, our curriculum practice or our business model, we want to know that we're doing work that encourages and enriches our, our neighborhoods and our community partners as much as it enriches our students, our staff and faculty. Um, sometimes that doesn't always work, um, but we try to do that to the best of our ability. And that's, that's the highlight that we have within our center, especially with high impact practices. You know, it's, it's so inspiring. And, and this, this, always really makes me, this is the type of culture, this is the type of um, um, sort of like ethical responsibility that, you know, institutions like Loyola has. And many education institutions really do have, mm-hmm. um, especially ones that, you know, have, have been around for a long time and, you know, have, have, have been mission-based um, that, um, that is not just a uh, like uh, that is not it's not about just let's just get students out with a degree and then that's it um and 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 that it bothers me that you know there are um for-profit universities who or or even to a large extent today i'm looking at you know like certain skill-based like boot camps and things like mm-hmm. that 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 tries to claim that they are offering a real sort of um, higher education experience because in my mind the higher education experience um, sounds a lot more like what you just described. You know, it has yeah. that sense of you know it's 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 a bigger community that and and it has a bigger it has a bigger impact on the ecosystem around you, mm-hmm. um, and that. Um, 
and it's not about just like how do I get the skills to build a website so I can go and be a web designer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's I, I like to especially when I'm talking to students sometimes about portfolios is that it's not meant to um, just teach you how to use a tool. It, it's meant to teach you the consequences of what that tool can do. Um, because if I I can teach you chemistry and make you an expert, but higher education is supposed to give you the cognitive perspective that chemistry can be dangerous. Um, as much power as the atom bomb gave us, it caused more devastation and destruction. So without the cognitive thought process of um, critical thinking and problem solving and social impact, that's what we're supposed to be fostering in higher education practices. Yes, we're giving them skill sets and tools to continue on into the workforce. We also want them to know the nature of what that's asking them and to think in these ways that challenge them and constantly make them um, reinvigorate themselves over time. Learning isn't done when you walk out of the classroom. Learning is going to be a lifetime experience to the end of your days. And then that's what I, I like to personally try to foster that in my courses and in the work that I do, because I think sometimes still people are in that model of we need to get them a degree, we need to get them out, then they'll be successful. Then they go into the workforce and, and employers are saying students aren't prepared. Um, it's because we're not engaging them in these harder conversations or challenging them to think beyond the scope of what they've been taught um, coming in through K through 12, because K through 12 is very prescriptive. Um, it's very much designed to give them, and, and some are doing it better than others. It's not to critique everyone as a generalization, um, but it is mostly um, oftentimes trying to get them through the system, sending them out the door and hoping that they're pushed off to someone's responsibility. And that's not what we do at Loyola, and or at least that's what I hope we don't do. And so uh, most of the folks that are in my circles, we're constantly engaging in doing what we can to to think that students can still go above and beyond without having to um, stress themselves out or run themselves into the ground. It's not that this is some impossible feat of pushing a rock up a hill. It's we're here to help you and support you and engage in these these spaces before you go out into the the real world, which air quotes, I did real world around, um, because I don't think that, I mean, like reality is socially constructed. It's what we make of it. And it's, it's the, mm -hmm. the directions that we push folks. And if, if that's towards the arc of, of getting people to think in these ways, that's, that's the hope overall. Yeah. So let me wrap up by asking you this question. I've actually asked if several other people that was on, you know, on this show and everyone's been giving really interesting, <laughs> um, insightful you know responses what are some of the um especially in this last year you know with covid and we all have to rethink a lot of a lot of things um and but also you know um things like george floyd's death mm -hmm. and and all the all the all the all the events that came after um what are some of the what are some of the uh what are some of the, the, the trends or some of the things that you are seeing from our students now? Um, what do they care about? And what do you see as opportunities for in higher education? That's an excellent question. Just to put you on the spot. You know, <laughs> of course. Maybe, you, know. Um, you know, what's the meaning of life here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my answer to that would be 42 from uh, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um from students, I've seen, and across the board, it's not specific to one age range or generation or, or type, is that students are, I think, 
recognizing how broken some of the systems and structures are and how much they want them to change and are just pushing on the pressure points. They're saying, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Um, we, I think, especially lately, there's a large criticism around students either not reading their emails entirely or not doing all of this. But this current state of affairs is one of the most disruptive in modern history. And we also now have access to technology beyond our comprehension. So we now have, um, a couple of years ago, I read an article that was, we're not even seven degrees of separation. We're 1.4 away from everybody else in the world because technology has connected us. And that was five years ago. Who knows what it looks like now with technology. We are all interconnected in a way we've never understood before. And students are going to use that to their advantage. They're going to break the mold. They're going to, they're going to find ways to disrupt, I think, systems that just hurt other people. Um, so I think this is one of the most, um, people call them apathetic. I think they're the most driven. They're the ones that are just not going to um, toe the line and follow the status quo anymore. Um, and I think that they're encouraging that in a lot of unique ways through content creation, um, taking their own social and financial capitals. Um, I could talk about this for, you <laughs> know, in, in a multitude of ways for, for way far too long. Um, so I think students themselves are now looking for, uh, they're looking for a world we never built for them. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, in it's almost like, you know, like it used to be that, you know, oh, I, I should not work, you know, I, I just don't fit because I'm the round peg and everyone's a square hole. It turns out that we are all irregular shape pegs. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, Hold hold on a minute, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yep. right? there's there's no method. There's I think that especially because of the challenges of the pandemic in in a very formative time of a lot of these students' years, and I'm interested to see how young folk in like the K through six system are going to come out after experiencing a year in a virtual world. Um, the the even in my generation as a, an older millennial, um, the world fell apart when we left high school. We had the financial collapse. We had a disruption in what we thought was prescribed to us. So the world that we were told was never, never real. And so we had to learn on the fly. Students that are now coming up have had to live through it in their most developmental time. So they, so we critique students for having ADHD or attention problems when they've been exposed to screens and constant bombardment of everything on a level we've never had to see before. And so I think we have to now innovate and adapt. And that's our challenge within education and especially higher education is that, again, like I've said, we've always been outdated. We've always been behind. And America is still a very young country. Um, while we built one-room schoolhouses, Prussians had a K-6 through curriculum that was very engaging through math, science, and also music and exercise and art. Um, so the world had education. We just came late to the game and thought we did it better. Um, and so I think my hope is that we take some of these disruptions and these new perspectives, these innovations that a lot of younger folks, as well as folks across generations, are seeing the holes in the system and want to make a better version of it um, and be creative and adaptive and take risks. I think uh, higher ed is very risk averse. They don't want to step on a toe. They don't want to fall out of line. They don't want to do something that someone else is going to critique them for. Um, I find that higher ed likes to wait for someone else to make the decision and then follow the line. Um, so in that sense, I think our biggest challenge um, and the biggest charge for educators is that we have to find methods to 
to allow the next generation to show us what they need mm-hmm. and and give them the space to do that and get out of their way, um, but also ourselves. I mean, none of us have to grow up. None of us have to fall back into line and go to the status quo. Um, I don't think that people should grow up. I think you should constantly look for the the flair, the color, the the expressive expansion. I think people should always be um, engaging creativity and whatever those elements look like for them. Um, and not letting people stand in your way. I think one of our our biggest critics are ourselves and the people that hold us back the most are ourselves. I think if we gave ourselves the freedom to to learn and explore our world would look a lot different. Um, yeah, that's my... What, what an answer. <laughs> um, Brody, uh, you are an absolute inspiration. Uh, it's... Uh, I, I don't I don't know how you just did that. Uh, I promise that we didn't script this. Um, it's but, not scripted. I don't know how to read a script, honestly. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, yeah, it certainly gives me a lot to think about. You are a very wise, as you said, older older millennial. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm surrounded by wonderful people that influence me. So <laughs> um, it wasn't it wasn't a, a journey by myself, and that's I think. That's the biggest lesson that I would advise any educators is our impact is bigger than we'll ever know. Patrick pulled me out of the out of the water twice. Um, so I have a lot of credit owed to him as well. But yeah, just reach out to people, folks like this, conversations like having a having a podcast to share in a space where this is very unscripted, um, is where I can learn as much from others as as I think and hope they can learn from me. Well, with that Thank you so much, Brody, for today. Uh, I we've got to we've got to get you back on another time, <laughs> and we can talk about all those other things we didn't get to talk about. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. But uh, thanks again, and uh, hope uh, for the continued success at Loyola and beyond. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, I hope that uh, you will uh, come back on again soon, though. You know, really to to share more of this uh, as, as 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 things progress. Thank you so much and talk to you soon. Thank you. Anytime. Take care. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius and Amanda Driscoll. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.